It's Wednesday the 6th of November and this is the Monocle Minute. Today is separatist sentiment on the rise in Canada. I'm Thomas Lewis in Toronto. Coming up, I'll be examining the rise of Wexit, a nationalist movement in Western Canada that's been gaining traction here since the re-election of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a few weeks ago. Plus, claims of a cover-up rock Westminster as evidence emerges of Russian interference in British politics. Japan aims to quell workplace fatigue by trialling a four-day week, and the results are surprising. And how one US newspaper is acting now to protect its future survival. I'm Ben Rylan in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. Over the weekend, hundreds of disgruntled Albertans met at a dance hall in Edmonton to discuss Wexit, a separation movement that, if Wexiteers had their way, would see the western oil-producing province leave Canada. But are voters likely to see the group as a serious political alternative? Monocle's Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis is on the line. Thomas, first, give us some context here. What exactly is Wexit? Well, the idea of Western alienization is how it's been described here historically, has a really rather long history in Canada and in Alberta too. Alberta is the historic uh, heartland of oil and gas production in Canada. And that sector alone, I believe, contributes around 17% of the, the national GDP each year. There is a system that was put into place in the 1960s called equalisation, which is where tax revenues from all of Canada's 10 provinces and its territories too get pooled into a a big pot of cash, if you like, and then redistributed to various parts of the country. So there's long been a sense in Alberta that the the spoils, if you like, of its very robust, uh, largely oil and gas producing sector has been uh, funnelled off into other parts of the country and that it's received very little back, if you like, for the strength of its own economy. That has gained potency, that disgruntlement has gained potency over the past few years, as of course back in 2016, say, world oil prices plummeted through the floor and Alberta's economy slipped into a rather harsh and severe depression and many campaigners in Alberta looked to Ottawa for financial support to try and um, bolster the economy there. And if you speak to activists now, they will say they got very little in return. I think all of this has been compounded, if you like, by the re-election of Justin Trudeau a few weeks ago in the general election here. Uh, Not a single Liberal Party MP was re-elected back into office in Alberta. So it is now entirely blue uh, in terms of its Conservative representation in Parliament Hill in Ottawa. That's a pretty clear sign that most Albertans, despite the best efforts of Justin Trudeau and his Liberal government to try and placate some of that disgruntlement really had failed rather spectacularly. And I think this is where Wexit supporters, as you describe them, are really now feeling that maybe the wind is is in their sails and they can maybe try and push for a greater political representation for a rather specific Albertan type of politics. Well, Tom, there are parts of that story that sort of ring a little bit familiar, I suppose. And when we look at movements like this, regardless of where they are in the world, it can sometimes be tempting to relegate groups like these into the the weird and wacky end of politics. What is the situation more broadly in Canada? Are voters seeing this separatist movement as a potentially serious idea? 
Well, I think if you look to Quebec, for example, which also has a very long history of uh, separatist moods, if you like, most famously back in 1995, when a referendum on whether Quebec should separate from the rest of Canada was only lost by around half a percentage point. It really was a knife edge thing. And if you look at this, the results from the, the election just gone here, the Bloc Québécois, which was a party founded in the early 1990s uh, and really, you know, gained huge momentum and was very, very popular in the years before and after that independence referendum. Back then, it really slipped back to being a fringe group. It had actually lost its official party status until the election on the 21st of October, when it now became the third largest party on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. Now, what's different in Alberta is that these ideas of independence movements and separatist voices, they have been around for some time in various forms, but they haven't largely speaking had the kind of electoral success that, say, its counterparts in Quebec have had. I think that's what Wexit supporters now are hoping will change. We have had uh, over the past uh, day or two suggestions from the Senate in Ottawa that a new caucus is about to be formed that will uh, try and advocate specifically for the interests of Western Canada. Whether they will align themselves explicitly with this idea of Wexit remains to be seen. But I think that the fact that there are several senators, which is the upper house of of, uh, Canadian sort of electoral politics, if you like, um, that they see that there is a need for a, a Western Canadian voice to be quite explicitly expressed at the heart of federal government here, I think is potentially quite significant too, and will no doubt give uh, lots of steam and momentum, I think, or a sense of that, uh, to the activists who gathered in Ed- Edmonton uh, over the weekend, and who are actually being buoyed by the sort of provincial leadership, if you like, which is also conservative, who think that this might be a good political moment for them to capitalise upon. Well, certainly one to keep our eyes upon. Thomas Lewis in Toronto. We do appreciate your insights. Thank you. A report on Russian interference in British politics has been compiled by Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee. But despite Downing Street having been in possession of the dossier for several weeks... Voters will not get to read it until after the upcoming election. Lance Price is a former director of communications at 10 Downing Street. Well, ultimately, the decision on anything like this rests with the Prime Minister, uh, but in discussion, obviously, with the Cabinet Secretary, the head of the uh, civil service, it's possible that there is something sort of left field which is holding the whole process up. But I think you can't escape the conclusion that if the report uh, gave a clean bill of health, if it, if it had come to the conclusion that there wasn't any interference of any kind and there was nothing to worry about, then why would that get bogged down in the Downing Street or the Whitehall machine? It wouldn't. That would be cleared very quickly. So I think that tells us immediately that there is something of concern uh, in the report, um, uh, which may or may not uh, have led to a legitimate uh, delay. Uh, If it hasn't led to a a legitimate delay, then it's uh, a deliberate attempt to stop it coming out before the election. And I think the fact that they're holding back the report makes it harder for them to attack Jeremy 
Corbyn for being a sort of patsy fellow traveller of, of, of Russia and so on, which has, which has sort of landed a few blows on Corbyn in the past. And it's an area where he is vulnerable. And why would the government want to weaken their ability to attack him on that by, by opening up a, a flank of their, of their own? I think what perhaps is more significant in the minds of Boris Johnson and others is that they'll be taking a judgment that actually, although some of us get very excited about this sort of thing, it kind of doesn't really land with the, with the bulk of the population who either find it either a bit confusing or not relevant to their day-to-day lives. So I, I suspect that their, their calculation in terms of the political tactics is that this isn't a salient enough issue, although it'll cause a bit of a row today and, and maybe for another few days, to swing any votes. To the United States now, where in a troubling climate for journalism, one newspaper is acting now in the hope of protecting its future. The Salt Lake Tribune has become the first legacy daily newspaper in the United States to be granted non-profit status by the IRS. The unprecedented move means that Utah's Pulitzer Prize-winning periodical can seek tax-deductible status and access more philanthropic funding, including donations from readers and the endowment of the Utah Journalism Foundation. The decision was spurred by Paul Huntsman, who acquired the 148-year-old news outlet back in 2016 and was faced with a challenge to bolster the company's finances. By turning the Tribune into a non-profit, Huntsman is giving up his sole ownership, which will now be governed by a board of directors, and all funds will flow directly into the newsroom rather than to shareholders. Is this the recipe for success in a struggling industry? The Tribune's next steps are sure to be closely watched. And finally today, Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey, considers whether the trial of a shorter working week in Japan ought to encourage us all to take things a little slower. The evidence is mounting that people do not need to be in the office nine hours a day, five days a week to get their job done. The latest experiment on the issue was in Japan, where Microsoft trialled a four-day work week throughout August. The result? Productivity jumped by a massive 40%, and employees took 25% less time off. There were other unexpected benefits for the company too. Electricity use dropped by a quarter, and printing by nearly two-thirds. Although office workers themselves have long known that a fair portion of the day is spent doing things that aren't strictly job-related, Microsoft's findings add legitimacy to a movement that has been growing ever since last year's landmark trial by Perpetual Guardian. The Auckland-based financial firm found that staff were better at their jobs and enjoyed them more when they were working four days a week. Oh, and their salary wasn't even cut. The reason behind it all is simple. Employees had more time to manage their personal life, letting them focus on their work while in the office. But it's a controversial subject, and not everyone is sold. While Perpetual Guardian made the change permanent within a few months, Microsoft Japan hasn't committed to anything and is trialling another flexible working model this winter. A UK report earlier this year said it wouldn't work nationally, as different sectors have different needs. Clearly, there's no blanket solution, but the trend is obvious. The bums-on-seats ethos that has permeated work culture for so long is slowly coming to an end. Our very hard-working business editor, Venetia Rainey, there. That's all in today's programme. You can read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. 
I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Thursday.